co-hosting for this week's podcast is Otari Greenberry, H.P. Leffler. I thought it'd be a really good idea to have Leff on for this episode as he was an instructor at the Army's SEER school. SEER stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. It's a training program taught to high-risk military personnel, such as Special Operations Forces and Air Crews. This program was designed by Colonel Nick Rowe, who wrote a book called Five Years to Freedom. We discussed this book and some points that we thought would be important to talk about as Colonel Rowe was captured in Vietnam as a Special Forces officer in 1963. He was held for five years before he made his escape in 1968, and he is one of 34 American prisoners of war to escape captivity in Vietnam. We talked about the situation in Puerto Rico, and we also touched on what is seemingly almost impossible for us as a country to find any common ground when we disagree on an issue, such as the kneeling for the national anthem. Uh, I feel like if we intend to continue to prosper and move forward, we need to kind of get over this hump. And we talked about some of that as well. And that is this week's Global Recon Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Abe's Bauman. For more than 20 years, their experienced attorneys have helped veterans across the country get the benefits they deserve. No one fights harder to protect the rights of veterans. Find out more at abesbauman.com vets. That's A-B-E-B-A-U-M-A-N-N.com slash vets. Hey, Lef, how's it going, brother? Not bad. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. There's a... Um... Always a lot of shit going on in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, right now it's just like the climate of politics and disagreeing is just like through the roof. On top of the recent disasters that have been happening, most recently Puerto Rico got completely crushed. And, um, there, you know, we were talking about this off air. They had issues with their economy and stuff like that before this happened. So now this puts them even in an even bigger hole. There oh was, yeah, yeah, and it's just a, a an overall bad situation. There were, I think it was like two days ago, a reporter posted a video to Twitter where he was at this port and all these shipping containers had like everything, medical supplies, food, generators, and. The problem was is they couldn't actually get the supplies into the island and to people who needed it. And um, now I believe U.S. Coast Guard, U.S. Navy, and other personnel are down there distributing this stuff and getting it to the people who need it, which is obviously a good thing. 
Oh, yeah. Um, the problem, of course, is that Puerto Rico is an island. You know, it's bad enough when stuff happens in New Orleans, which is still, despite everything, connected with the, you know, the, the interstate highway system. So supplies and all this can be shipped, you know, if you truck down to them. On an island, it can only really come in, only really come in. It can only come in by by ship and by, um, you know, and by air. Well, the airport is, you know, the airport in San Juan, the last news report I saw said it was overwhelmed and operating at a fraction of its capacity, um, both because of power outages, debris on the runway, and the simple fact that it's only, I mean, it's not a huge airport. You know, aircraft are stacked overhead trying to get in. There's only so much ramp space. Um, aircraft can only, you know, they can't be refueled there. So they have, they can only get in if they've got enough fuel to get back out. And it's just, it's a mess. I mean, it's a logistical nightmare added to which there's only so many port facilities and the vessels that can make it from the mainland United States to Puerto Rico are not going to be able to just, you know, pull up to, to, you know, to Fisherman John's dock and offload. That's not how that's going to work. So it's, um, it's dicey. It's, it's gotta be a complete nightmare. And I mean, I mean, obviously my heart goes out to everyone stuck on Puerto Rico. Um, but the, I can't even imagine trying to coordinate that logistical dragon. Yeah, it's tough. And, and on top of that, the, the type of personnel who deal in rescue and recovery and, and aid are already stretched out with all of these uh, places getting rocked at the same time or just at the same time. You know, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Texas, Florida. And, and you know, it, like you said, it's just going to be a logistical nightmare. But there are people who are who deal with these type of things. And I think Puerto Rico specifically because of the it's an island and the economic situation prior to this is going to take a very long time to, to sort itself out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, I think that, I think that it's one of those deals that it will sort of improve exponentially. You know, once, once a toehold can be established, um, you know, and the, the sort of the, the near to intermediate term, or rather I should say immediate to near term needs are satisfied, you know, uh, the, a bit of order is, is brought to chaos at the, you know, at the ports, at the, at the airports, um, you know, a bit of machinery can get brought in, stuff can get brought in to start fixing, you know, even if it's just a simple matter of restoring power to the airport. So now smaller aircraft can get in that don't necessarily, that, that may need to be refueled on site, you know, that'll start improving it. And as like every, Every step forward will allow not just one more step forward to be taken, but two or three. You know, um, you start bringing in, yeah, of course, you know, food, all this stuff. But as the infrastructure is fixed, therefore, it'll like everything that happens will allow it to go a little bit faster and a little bit faster and a little bit faster. Um, but for right now, man, I can't even imagine that's got, I mean, again, prayers for everybody involved in that yeah so obviously with this whole deal of you know guys kneeling for the anthem and then it was already a controversial topic and then the president 
commenting on it just like set everything ablaze and more guys are protesting and it really outside of that happening out you know the specifically in the NFL and, and some of the other sports guys commenting on it it has driven like furious debate in America you know news media Twitter Facebook you name it and pe- everybody's picking sides and I, I don't want to comment on it on on what they're doing specifically but kind of the overreaching point what I, I think we is good to discuss is that it feels like we've gotten to a point where we can't agree to disagree and work on a solution in this country and it's it's almost my way or the highway amongst the citizens as everybody kind of argues and debates about this and and then it seems like that same issue that we seem to be having as a country is also very infused into the political process at this point. I mean, you know, politicians haven't been getting much done. And I'm I'm not talking about in the judicial I'm not talking about like the president himself, but I mean below that in the Senate and whatnot. And it's 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 really a problem and I think it's something that we need to explore as a country as we intend to continue to move forward and, and grow. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember a time when if you like the, the general political idea was if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Okay. All right. Uh, I, okay. I mean, obviously you believe what you believe and if people don't, you know, agree with you, then you, it makes sense that you would think they were wrong. Okay. And then it diverged diverge to, if you don't agree with me, you're stupid. All right, well, slightly less constructive. And by slightly less constructive, I mean pretty much not constructive. But again, understandable, not reasonable, but understandable. And we have somehow reached this place where it's, if you don't agree with me, you're evil. Yeah. And if you don't, you know, and and not even that, it's if you don't agree with my methods, you're evil. Okay, okay. so I might agree with you that I don't like that X, Y or Z happened. I just don't agree with your mechanism for. I just don't agree with your mechanism for um, handling X, Y, and Z. Um, but, you know, and because I don't agree with your mechanism for it, I'm evil. Okay. You know, uh, all right. You know, additionally, we seem to be in a time in American history where we are almost shockingly unable to pay attention to anything at all. Um, you know, so we hear something and we don't like it. So instead of figuring out what the deal is, we lose our damn minds about it. Okay. Um, it's, it's not a good place to be. We can't stay here long term, but 
at the end of the day, we've been here before and we can, we came back from it. So I, I have hope that, you know, the future, you know, we have better days ahead of us than any we leave behind. Yeah. I, I think it's necessary to, to identify this, the issues. And I, and obviously I, you know, I think this is part of a huge issue that we have and then identify how we can move forward. And I mean, you see it like on social media, especially, you know, everybody's on social media. So that's where you kind of the, the meeting grounds of a lot of the arguments take place. And it's just completely irrational on all sides. And you, you see people, you know, people who are like family unfriending each other on Facebook and, you know, it, 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 it gets personal and it's like, I think part of it is what, what the internet brings and that kind of instant connectivity, you know, you can just, you know, hit three buttons on your phone and, and write something on Facebook and people are, are right back at you. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the power of this instant connectivity is kind of a double-edged sword. And, you know, the positive of it would be something like this podcast. You know, we, we can reach people who we, who may ever, who may otherwise not have heard from us or talked to us and we can share good messages and stories and everything. And then on the flip side, you know, you know, when something happens, people, you know, they'll write one or two things on social media and then kind of forget about it. You know, like you said, we can't pay attention to things anymore. So I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. Well, we're a very headlines-based society. You know, you could write a story in the in the newspaper, or or specifically for re- release online, and the story could be all about all the great things that you know Joe Schmo is doing, right? But then you if you write the headline in a certain way, right, now you have thousands of, quite frankly, idiots protesting in the streets and burning Joe Schmo in effigy because all they read was the headline. You know, additionally, and I've mentioned this on your podcast before, we're in an era where, you know, I, I can only view the words journalistic and ethics when used together as some sort of sick joke or oxymoron. Um, you know, and so, you know, they're definitely they're they're definitely fanning the flames on on this deal. Partly, I'm sure, for ratings. Um, you know, and and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. But it's um, but you know, to be fair, to be really truly fair about it. Whether you like, you know, the the people kneeling during the anthem, whether you consider it an appropriate means of whatever, I mean, at the end of the day, it's their right. And if we are now talking about issues we weren't previously talking about, again, I'm not I'm not condemning it. I'm not condoning it. But there is a benefit to, at the very least, um. You know, at the very least, discussing these these issues. Um, you know, I use as an example, um, and and it's an example I, I actually got from a book about the uh, 
you know, the special forces detachment a in, in Berlin. But it's an example that when I was in Germany, I, I, I had myself where, you know, Germans would, you know, talk to me and talk to me and talk to me about how poorly, you know, African-Americans are treated in the United States. And the response was, well, what about Turks? What about Turks here in Germany? And their response was, well, that's different because Turks aren't people. Well, okay. All right. Okay. So, and like my dad said, when I was growing up, he's like, you know what? We've got a ton of problems in this country, but at least here we address them. At least we may not always necessarily have a, a solution ready to hand, but at least it's something that we talk about. At least it's something that we're trying to figure out. You know, even to this day, you know, in Germany, these are not issues that are readily dealt with, readily talked about. So again, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think it's appropriate or not, or whether you care or not. I mean, I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that there's a large group of people in America who really don't give a damn what anybody, what, what an NFL player's political agenda is, what he thinks about any given issue, as long as he's scoring touchdowns or making sacks or making interceptions or doing whatever it is that his position is calling upon him to do. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, the fact that we're now maybe talking about some of these issues can only really be viewed as a positive thing. You know, you can't solve a problem if you're not even willing to talk about it. Right. At the very least, it drives discussion. And then from there, I think we just need to have an understanding like I agree with you or I I disagree with you, but we're not going to you know, call each other evil and, and move in this discussion as if I think you're evil and you think I'm evil. And then yeah, we can come up with a solution. Stupid. Right. And, you know, I, I think there are people who, like you said, just don't really care about it. They just want to watch football. And then there are people who feel, you know, very offended by it. And, um, yeah. you know, like, like I said, and, and, and you see, and on a, on a lot of issues... I've seen uh, when it comes to issues that may involve veterans or something that involves veterans and or they hold dear to heart, I've seen a lot, like, kind of a mixed response on this. I've seen a lot of veterans who feel, you know, incre- incredibly disrespected and are angry about it. But at the same time, I see a lot of veterans who are like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's their right. So it's kind of interesting to see the different responses from the veteran community on it. Um, but yeah, it is what it is, and, and you know, hopefully we can move forward and, and figure things out in terms of how to how we're going to engage each other on these on these issues, and I think that would make for a better uh, country going forward. Um, so, one of the things you've done in your career, Lef, mm-hmm. one of the many things you've done is you were an instructor at the Sears School. Um, I was. Some people in the audience will be familiar with what Sears School is. For those who aren't, can we just give a, a, a bit of some background information? Absolutely. Um, the United States Army Sears School, it, it stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And what it is is a course that is designed to prepare personnel who have a high probability of capture to face captivity, to, well, to face you know survival situation 
you know, captivity and prepare them for escape in both, you know, wartime and, you know, you know, hostage, you know, not non-governmental, you know, detention. Um, it comes from, it was the brainchild of, you know, Colonel Nick Rowe. And, you know, it was really intended to sort of fix um, what was expected of, you know, captured Americans leading up to the Vietnam War. I mean, all the way, you know, we see this, you know, name, rank and serial number garbage. Well, that's great until, you know, where does that leave you if, you know, you really don't want to just get shot out of hand and, you know, the enemy is not in the mood to listen to that crap. You know, not everybody. In fact, I would go so far as to say the majority of the people we've tangled with, hell, even during World War II, didn't really give the Geneva Conventions more than, you know, passing lip service. So, I mean, they're super, they're, they're super insistent on, on us observing it, but them observing it is a whole other issue. So it gives, it gives service members, it gives people in a position who are more likely to be captured than others, you know, a framework to fall back on beyond name, rank, and serial number. So it's, it, you know, and it's not just, you know, the ability to, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to tackle this? But it also gives them the ability to do so, you know, as we say, re, you know, return with honor, um, to come back with your head held high, you know, and not cast downward in shame because you weren't this superhuman, which, you know, it's, it's super easy to be like, well, I'll never tell them anything. Yeah, okay. You know, now try that when you haven't eaten anything but, you know, pumpkin rind soup and maggoty bread for the last seven years. Okay, have at it. So it really is intended to, you know, provide, you know, provide the skill sets for, okay, I am now completely alone. I am cut off from American supply. I'm cut off from communications. I'm cut off from all of these things. I'm not captured, but I am, I'm cut off, cut off from all this stuff. How am I going to survive while I'm in that situation? You know, then it's okay. So now I've been captured. How am I going to face my captors? You know, with, with on the one hand, with the honor befitting an American service person. Um, you know, understanding that you know th this is a a dangerous business. You know, we we of our own free will took risks, and some things are more important than you know the individual person. But at the same time, understanding that, you know, you're expecting someone who's not in the best physical, psychological, mental, you know, situation to, to, to face this and do so again with the, you know, with the honor that is expected of an American service person. It's not a fun course. Um, it is not an easy course. It is certainly not a gentleman's course, but it will teach you a whole lot, not just about, you know, that situation and the, you know, the, that situational based learning, but it will teach you a whole lot about yourself and the people you're in that course. for. And, and that course is a must for, like you said, high risk 
personnel, special operations yes. guys and, and pilots and stuff like that, people who could potentially end up captured uh, for the type of operations that they are involved with. Correct. So with with the Vietnam War kicking off, um, at first there were just special forces advisors there on the ground. Uh, you know, at the time, the whole concept of it was they want to stop the spread of communism. So Army Special Forces Green Berets specialize in working by, with, and through indigenous forces to, you know, resist the oppressors, right? So Correct. that is what special forces guys were doing. They were military advisors over there advising the South Vietnamese on how to counter the North Vietnamese. So, and um, it wasn't until 1965 that m massive amounts of U.S. ground troops were in Vietnam. So up until then, it was just a small number of special forces advisors and some support personnel. Correct. So, so now we're going to talk about uh, Colonel Nick Rowe, who you mentioned, as he was a, a special forces captain in Vietnam in 1963 when he was captured uh, before the, the massive ground troops were, were, were there, the massive amount of ground troops. So Nick Rowe wrote a book called Five Years to Freedom, The True Story of a Vietnam Prisoner of War. He, he graduated West Point, um, and he is one of only 34 Americans to escape captivity during the Vietnam War. Incredibly difficult to do. Um, we're not going to go through the whole book, obviously. We're going to go through some some highlighted points that we thought were good to talk about. But if anyone actually reads the book, if you haven't, there are instances where him and and some other Americans who he were who he was captured with were able to escape the camp where they were at, but due to a lack of nutrition, a lack of energy, and the harsh terrain of the jungle, they were en they ended up getting captured, uh, recaptured, uh, you know, within a couple of hours. So, you know, we'll just start with some background information. Uh, it was October 29th, 1963. They were only in country for three months. Um, and, they, and Roe was captured by Viet Cong elements. So the, the Viet Cong were... They operated in South Vietnam, Vietnam, but they were supported by the North Vietnamese. So they were basically a a, a guerrilla army. Yeah, they were an they were an insurgent group. Um, it was an, you know an insurgency that was obviously um, fomented by you know North Vietnam and you know supported by both the Soviets and the Chinese. Um, and it's important to note that. Uh, Nick Rowe and his ability to, I mean, the way Nick was, was kept is not, you know, was not typical of Americans captured in Vietnam. He was kept the way he was kept because he was captured before, you know, the North Vietnamese army was openly involved in, in the war. You know, later on in the war, prisoners were, of course, taken north where their ability to escape was almost nothing. Right. Right. And, and he was held in, in South Vietnam. Yes, he was in a, a Viet Cong camp. Um, so his 
you know, the, the amount of distance he was going to have to move to get to be found by American forces was considerably less than someone, you know, at, at the Hanoi Hilton, for example. Right. Where, where uh, famously uh, Senator John McCain was held. Indeed. On October 29th, 1963, after only three months in the country, alongside Captain Humberto Rocky Versace and Sergeant Daniel Pitcher, Roe and these two Americans were on an operation to drive the Viet Cong out of a village. They, it was just the Americans, and they were alongside their South Vietnamese counterparts. Uh, due to faulty intelligence, they miscalculated the size of the enemy, and they were surprised by the force of the enemy, and the South Vietnamese broke rank, uh, causing a lot of chaos and confusion, and it was in that chaos and confusion that the Americans were captured. So, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely that's absolutely the case. Um, the stalwartness of our South Vietnamese allies um, was dramatically over overestimated in that particular in that particular operation. Right, and and as you read the book, obviously that he talks about it in, in greater detail, and you, you'll see exactly what I mean when, when I say they kind of broke rank and it just caused all kind of, of chaos and in that chaos the him and uh Rocky and and Daniel Pitzer were, were you know trying to keep some type of order while retreating um so now we'll, we'll go over some of the points that we thought would be good to discuss with you guys uh and here's the first one the purpose for separating us was quite evident as the individual becomes a single animal fighting for survival, losing the ability to identify or associate with anything other than himself and basing his actions on his immediate needs. So they were kept in a very small three by four by six feet bamboo cage. And they were separated for the majority of the time that they were captured, eventually separated into different camps. Correct. You know, they the Viet Cong wanted to keep these guys separated in order to break them down, in order to have them rely on anything that they would give them, you know, any food, any, you know, let them out of the cage, walk around or whatever, and have them depend on them in order for them to break them and use them as propaganda, parade them in front of the cameras and, and, and whatnot. Now, I believe there were points where uh, they had to walk past one of the other guy's cages in order to use the bathroom, and they would slip little notes to each other and kind of keep themselves on the same page uh, in order to know what's going on or whatever. Um, and I think from the, the perspective of the Viet Cong as captors, they wanted to isolate these guys in order to break them down and fully use them to their what they view them as uh, propaganda value. Well, that's part of it. I mean, also keep in mind the human being is a social animal. All right. Humans, humans do not survive well in, in complete isolation. So if your goal is to break down someone's ability to resist you, to resist telling you what you want to hear, 
to resist giving you the information that you want, especially when you consider that you have got almost nothing but time. Isolation is a huge weapon in that arsenal. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, you can, you can strike someone with a closed fist a lot harder than you can poke someone with a single finger. Um, you know, you, it's the, the reason why, you know, fighting positions in the infantry are, are, are two man fighting positions. Human beings can handle a lot more fear, uncertainty, doubt if they're there with someone than they can when they're alone. So, you know, you, you're, you're trying to break, break someone down. The purpose of all of this, it's not a battle. The way we, we would teach it is that this is not a battle of wits. You're not going to be able to out, you might be able to outsmart the enemy in the short term, but you're not going to be able to do it in the long term. And especially if, you know, you've got, you know, if you're separated from, your mates, you're separate, you're separated from your people, you're separated from everybody. And, you know, the longer this goes on, the more profound the effect it's going to have. And, you know, for, for those of you who have never spent too much time by yourselves, for those of you who have never been up in your own head, wondering about things that in retrospect, once you got through it, you probably shouldn't have been wondering about that's, that's the entire goal of, of the enemy is to get to get you to stop thinking like an American soldier to right. get you to st- or a service member to get you to start thinking like a, a weak lost forgotten individual who is only interested in survival right and 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 that takes you out of your element out of your game and now you're you're playing into their hands yeah and- you're making decisions on an entirely different front and one that is not beneficial for what you're actually trying to do. Right. And a- another point to note is as as Roe was a, a, an officer, they didn't know he was an officer up until about the time that he escaped. Uh, wh- what he told them was that he was drafted and he was a he was there responsible for civil engineering projects like helping build villages and stuff like that. And and he hid the fact that he was an officer from them. Uh, why was that important? Um, well, it's important because you are trying to come up with an ability for them. You're, you're trying to make them see you as a person, right? You're trying to come up to create some sort of common ground with them, even if it's not, you know, you're not actively doing so you are sort of passively, you know, you're, you know, you're trying to make sure that they see like, Oh, Hey, you know, also you're trying to, you know, you're trying to position yourself in such a way, you know, so that they just, you know, they don't think they don't need to know they've captured an officer of the special forces. If they think, I've captured just some schmuck engineer, not that there's anything wrong with engineers, um, <laughs> then, you know, that this is not, this is not a prisoner worth exploiting. This is not a prisoner who knows, um, you, the, you know, the things that we want him to know. This is not a prisoner who's going to be of good, um, propaganda value. All right. So now 
we'll go for the, the second quote from the book. And it's, then in a moment of reevaluation, I thought of who and what I was. The importance of never losing my identity in this one-dimensional world of spirit-warping degradation. I was an officer, a West Pointer. I was a member of the Special Forces. I was American. I was not geared to die in a forest prison, my body covered with infection under the control of a group of individuals whose only interest in me was that, inspired by their political cadre. If they wanted me dead, they were going to have to put out more effort than merely watching me starve. So this is, to me, when I read that, this is him, you know, having like a moment of, of strength, you know, remembering who he is, you know, where he comes from, uh, finding his purpose, and really being defiant in the, in the face of the enemy. Well, absolutely. I mean, and, and not even so much being defiant. Like, I've, I doubt very much that this revelation of his was manifest in some outward display of F you oh, well, yeah, to, not, not like you know, to outward, his captors. Right, like, kind of like But inward. at the same time, the, the key to any successful resistance is internal. Whether you are extremely, you know, whether it's faith-based, whether it's whatever-based, you know, if, 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 if you are you know, sitting in your cell communing with your God every moment that you're not being interrogated, if that's what it does it for you, great. If, if, all, if all you're doing is sitting in your cell thinking about tacos, man, whatever. Um, <laughs> the point is, is that you cannot allow yourself to forget who you are and what and what you are you know that is not a time for doubts that is not a time for you know intellectual self-reflection that is a time for ironclad resolve and will um and his rediscovery of that in his case through his faith and that and the reminder of I am not some animal in the jungle. I am not I am not who the enemy is trying to convince me that I am. I am a West Pointer. I am an officer in the United States Army. I'm a, I'm a Green Beret. I am a, you know a, a, a Christian. I am whatever, you know, if that's what it is, you know, good because you can't resist if you don't know who you are and you can't resist if you don't believe in who you are. Yeah, exactly. And and I think on top of some of these these concepts that he had to cement in his brain, you know, as as this is these are tools that I'm gonna need to to survive this and get out of this. Um uh, Rocky, who he was captured alongside with, was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions as a captive. And I mean this dude was like hard as nails, man. And the the last time American prisoners heard his voice before he was being led to be executed, he was loudly singing, God bless America. And as you read the book, throughout the book, Rocky was, was out, outwardly defiant at almost every opportunity. Um, they, would, they would have them sit with... Uh, you know, guys from the the uh, like like I guess some kind of political instructors 
from the Viet Cong, and, and they would sit with them in classrooms and, and try and, I guess, in effect, brainwash them and, and tell them and, and prepare them for what they would perceive as uh, good propaganda, put them in front of a camera and, and have them you know, denounce the United States and say everything they're doing is wrong and, and that kind of thing. And every time that they were brought into these situations, Rocky was just absolutely defiant. And um, and I believe he is the first uh, soldier who was, or, or serviceman, to be awarded a Medal of Honor while a captive. Um, really, really incredible, really, you know, a guy who's, like I said, was just hard as nails. And I, I, I believe his, his steadfast, you know, ironclad will kind of helped to inspire some of these guys as they were in the camps. And, and they were moved around to different camps and there were different uh, prisoners brought in, guys that, that they didn't know and, and they grew to know as they were uh, captives together. Um, and, and then part of the issue, not, a, not only was it the, the mental anguish of, of being held captive, but a lot of guys were dying due to malnutrition, due to infection and not having proper, uh, proper medical care. So that's it for the discussion of the book, Five Years to Freedom, on this episode. What we're going to do is play the rest of it on the next episode, which is going to come out in a couple of days. So be on the lookout for that. We hope you guys enjoy this podcast. The book, Five Years to Freedom, is really incredible. I encourage anyone listening who thought this was interesting to get your hands on a copy of it. Uh, you, you really have to read the full book to really get into it. As always, we encourage you to like, share, subscribe, and download the episodes on iTunes, on SoundCloud. That way we know that you guys are enjoying what we're doing and it will help us continue to put out good content every week. My website is www.globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. Chantel Taylor, longtime co-host. Her Instagram account is Mission underscore Critical. Her Facebook account is Battle Worn, the Memoirs of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. Check it out. She wrote a very good book called Battle Worn, the Memoir of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan, available everywhere books are sold. Easiest place to get it is on Amazon. H.P. Leffler has been co-hosting uh, for the past couple of weeks. He will continue to work uh, on the podcast with us. Uh, his Instagram account is 4runner, so that's the number 4runner.freya, F-R-E-Y-J-A. So check out Left on there. He posts on a regular basis. Uh, he's very into outdoors, um, everyday carry type of stuff. So if you're into that, you'll definitely enjoy his social media account. All right, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace. <laughs>